Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, February 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A Georgia judge releases a grand jury report on a Trump election probe. The Congressional Budget Office warns the U.S. could default as soon as July. Russia launches renewed missile strikes on infrastructure facilities. China sanctions Lockheed Martin and Raytheon over arms sales to Taiwan. Armenia proposes a peace treaty project with Azerbaijan. The U.S. and Iran are reportedly in indirect talks on a prisoner swap. Israel passes a new law revoking citizenship for terror convicts. Chinese retirees protest over plans to cut health benefits. The FBI searches for more classified Biden docs at the University of Delaware. And the FDA considers making an opioid addiction drug available over the counter. Our top story, a Georgia special grand jury releases a partial report on the 2020 election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNN, CNBC, Reuters, Associated Press, and NBC. On Thursday, a special grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, released a partial report from an investigation into allegations that former President Donald Trump and his allies meddled in Georgia's voting process as part of a broader effort to overturn the 2020 election. This comes after Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney ordered a partial release of the panel's findings, including the introduction, conclusion, and any concerns the grand jury panel had about perjury earlier this week. The partial report said, quote, one or more witnesses may have lied under oath and urged Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis to pursue indictments against them. The identities of the witnesses, however, weren't revealed in the few pages released to the public. Seventy-five witnesses gave sworn testimony, including Trump allies Rudy Giuliani and Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina. As the special grand jury examined Trump's controversial claims of voter fraud and his January 2, 2021 phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which he allegedly claimed he won the state. The special grand jury also unanimously voted that there was no widespread voter fraud in the state. The former president released a statement Thursday maintaining his innocence, asserting that he did absolutely nothing wrong. Unlike a regular grand jury, the special purpose grand jury cannot issue indictments, but rather it submits its findings to the district attorney, who can then decide whether to present evidence to a grand jury for criminal charges. All right. Thanks for that rundown on this political story. And unsurprisingly, we have some divisive narratives Let's start with the pro-Trump narrative from The Federalist. Just like its predecessors, this politically motivated investigation into Trump found absolutely nothing on him. The whole special purpose grand jury was senseless from the beginning. And after wasting everyone's time, it's trying to spin its findings to say that one or more witnesses may have committed perjury without revealing any names. MSNBC is giving us a Democratic narrative. Trump is taking a very strange and premature victory lap by issuing a statement to a partial release of a report in which his allies may have lied under oath. Trump boasts about the report not mentioning him by name, but the partial report didn't mention anyone's name. This is another misleading statement from the former president, and much more will come to light from this investigation. In my mind, this is 
close to a worst case scenario. I don't really care personally who's president. I think it doesn't matter as much as people think, but the the only thing we can't have is people not clear on who the president actually is. <laughs> who is the president, by the way? I think it might be you. <laughs> the pro-Eric narrative. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a report claims the U.S. could default as soon as July. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, The Wall Street Journal, and NPR Online News. The U.S. Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, on Wednesday predicted that unless the current $31.4 trillion cap on borrowing, which the U.S. reached on January 19th, is raised or suspended, the Treasury Department will no longer be able to pay all of its bills sometime between July and September this year. The final projection will be determined by tax revenues received in April, with the CBO warning that if they don't meet expectations, a default could occur before July. The CBO also changed its prediction on the size of the annual federal budget deficit over the next decade, jumping 20% to $18.8 trillion from $15.7 trillion in May. The decision to raise the debt limit has been at a deadlock, with the new GOP-majority House requesting that it be accompanied by spending cuts, a measure the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress have declined. This comes a day after U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that a debt default would cause a catastrophe, including failing to pay millions of Social Security beneficiaries and military members, despite initiating extraordinary measures since January 19th. The CBO cites factors such as Social Security, Medicare, veterans' benefits, and future interest payments as reason for the growing debt, and also predicts that incoming tax revenue won't keep pace with the rising prices. President Biden is expected to detail his budget plan on March 9th and has called on Republicans to lay out their own proposals. Those were the facts, and three spins have emerged. The Democratic narrative is the first one from Jacobin. Republicans are holding the debt ceiling hostage in order to dismantle American welfare programs. Though raising the debt ceiling isn't a big deal in comparison to the repercussions of doing nothing, the new GOP majority is only too happy to continue with a stalemate, as a government close down will favor them. It's likely that the U.S. will once again take a ride on the same stopgap merry-go-round as always, to the detriment of average Americans. And the Republican narrative comes from Western Journal. The chief financial officer of the U.S. is begging Congress to increase the nation's credit line because lawmakers have continually spent more money than they have. Democrats have been likened to an out-of-control child with a credit card, already having given nearly $100 billion to Ukraine, while Americans struggle to pay for gas and groceries. Hopefully this emergency will serve as a wake-up call to those in power to manage the nation's finances responsibly. And we have our first nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. national debt will reach $50 trillion by September of 2029. Not to sound like a broken record, but this is a worst case scenario. I don't really care if we raise our revenues and taxes or if we lower our spending, but the only thing I don't want is for neither to happen and we can't pay our bills. What a disaster. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Your administration's going to have to tackle this. Well, we're working on it. 
Uh, we're we're trying to we're trying to steal that Democratic credit card. We can't seem to find it. Oh yeah, yeah. Can I can I borrow that, that <laughs> I know, credit right? card? <laughs> I, uh, Daddy needs a new pair of shoes. Like <laughs> yeah, for real. I know. The conflict in Ukraine continues, and we look at day three fifty eight as Russia launches renewed missile strikes on infrastructure facilities. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, Ukrainska Pravda, Hindustan Times, and CNBC. Russia launched renewed missile attacks on infrastructure facilities across Ukraine in overnight attacks on Thursday, striking sites in the central regions of Poltava and Karovorod, as well as the western region of Lviv. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, said Russia launched a total of 36 missiles, adding that 16 of them were shot down by Ukrainian air defenses. There were no reports of related civilian casualties at this stage. An additional Russian attack was also recorded in the region of Dnipropetrovsk, striking the city of Pavlorod. One civilian was reported killed and seven more were injured. Meanwhile, in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region over the past day, Ukrainian officials said six civilians were killed and 13 more were injured. Elsewhere, after initially pledging two battalions of Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, equivalent to 62 vehicles, German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius said on Wednesday, that it's proving difficult to deliver that many vehicles at this stage. He noted that as things stand, Germany will send 14 Leopard 2 tanks, while Portugal will deliver three. In other news, in video captured by the Associated Press, a mercenary fighting for Ukraine could be seen wearing what appears to be a patch belonging to the terror group Islamic State. Russia has previously accused Ukraine of recruiting Islamic State fighters from Syria, but Kyiv denied the allegation. Thanks for those disturbing facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CNBC. Russia's deliberate targeting of energy infrastructure, unnecessarily increasing the suffering of civilians, amounts to war crimes. This continuing barbarity must be confronted. TASS is giving us a pro-Russian narrative. Attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure are a direct consequence of the failure of the country's leadership to meaningfully engage in peace talks and mistaken belief they can defeat Russia on the battlefield. These attacks will stop once a more sober position is reached. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there is a 2% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by the year 2024. So, Eric, I'm just going to, I don't want to judge one way or the other, and I want you to judge one way or the other. I'm just going to say three facts in a row, and you tell me if they're true or false, okay? Okay. The, the West, Europe, United States are sending weapons to Ukraine. That's true. Um, Ukrainian forces are using those weapons to fight Russia. That's true. It appears that it's possible that Islamic State fighters are part of those Ukrainian forces. That's true. All right. The PRC sanctions Lockheed Martin and Raytheon for Taiwan arms sales. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Fox News, CNN, Axios, and The Hill. China placed U.S.-based arms manufacturers Lockheed Martin and Raytheon on its unreliable entities list on Thursday, barring the companies from importing goods into China or making new investments in the country. These are the latest sanctions imposed on the companies over their sale of weapons to Taiwan. 
Raytheon was awarded $412 million in September to upgrade Taiwan's military radar. And Lockheed Martin has also supplied the island with radar, helicopters, and air traffic control equipment. The aerospace giant has also helped with fighter jet development. China's past sanctions were less clear regarding penalties for violations, though this time both companies are subject to fines twice the amount of their arms sales to Taiwan dating back to 2020. Their senior executives will also be barred from entering and working in China. This comes as the U.S. has already barred sales of weapons-related technology to China, though some military contractors also have civilian aerospace business dealings in the PRC. Lockheed Martin, for example, has sold air traffic control equipment to Chinese civilian airports. China's unreliable entity list is relatively new, having been announced by the state's Ministry of Commerce in 2019, particularly aimed at combating the growing U.S. sanction regime and implementation guidelines released in 2020. U.S.-China tensions have risen in recent years as China has raised its rhetoric around Taiwan. The U.S. officially recognizes the one-China policy, but is also Taiwan's number one weapons provider. Thank you for the facts, Scott. The pro-China narrative is the first spin that has emerged from this story. It's coming from Global Times. These sanctions are deserved, as both these companies have been advocating for massive weapons shipments to Taiwan, which is a direct threat to Chinese security. Though the U.S. has imposed sanctions on Chinese companies, the punishments against Lockheed and Raytheon may go further than the fine, as they lose access to Chinese-based rare-earth elements for manufacturing. And the anti-China narrative comes from Military.com. These sanctions are unnecessary as the U.S. has never exported weapons as a means of antagonizing China. Since China and Taiwan split in 1949, the two states have never been the same. The U.S., as a longtime ally of Taipei, is also obligated by its federal law to maintain economic security with Taiwan, which is why Raytheon and Lockheed Martin conduct both military and commercial aerospace business with the island. And the nerd narrative says there's a 33% chance that China will launch a full-scale invasion of Taiwan before 2030, and that comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. I'll say this about China. They have their unreliable entities list. They're more polite than Nixon was with his enemies list. I wouldn't mess with them, though. Who, Nixon or China? Armenia offers a peace treaty project to Azerbaijan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Azer News, Barron's, and EAC News. Armenia's Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan announced on Thursday that a project for a full peace treaty to end the decades-long dispute over the Caucasus Nagorno-Karabakh region has been presented to Azerbaijan. The draft document has also been handed over to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe's Minsk Group co-chairing countries, the U.S., Russia, and France. This comes two days after the Kremlin stated that Vladimir Putin had stressed to his Azerbaijani counterpart, Iham Aliyev, the importance of ensuring stability and security in the southern Caucasus. Azerbaijan's foreign ministry spokesperson, Ayaksen Hajizada, however, reacted by claiming that Armenia has proposed an unacceptable international mechanism and hasn't yet given up its allegedly unlawful territorial claims against Azerbaijan. The former Soviet republics have fought two wars for control over Azerbaijan's ethnic Armenian majority enclave, killing over 35,000 people, and Yerevan has recently accused Baku of ethnic cleansing and forcing Armenians to leave the region 
as Azerbaijani environmental activists block the only road linking Karabakh to Armenia. On Wednesday, Armenia's foreign minister Ararat Mirzoyan declared that Yerevan is ready to restore peace and fully normalize relations with Turkey, which closed its borders with Armenia in 1993 in solidarity with Azerbaijan in the first Nagorno-Karabakh war and backed Baku in the 2020 offensive. Thanks for that rundown of this long-running conflict, Eric. We have a narrative A from Jerusalem Post. The peace treaty project displays Armenia's long-standing commitment to restoring peace in the Caucasus, which Azerbaijan has so far failed to meet. It's Azerbaijan's occupation of the Armenian sovereign territory and aggressiveness toward Armenians that is blocking peace, not Armenia. If Baku is indeed pragmatic and serious about peace, there's nothing impeding its return to negotiations. Newsweek gives us narrative B. This proposal is yet another political stunt made by Yerevan to try to deceive foreign powers into putting pressure on Baku in a cynical game of power politics that uses ethnic Armenians in Karabakh merely as pawns. There is no commitment to peace in this offering as Armenia has once again engaged in negotiations to play for time as it seeks to prepare its troops for a new offensive. And we've got yet another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that the Armenia-Turkey border will reopen by October 2023. A report claims the U.S. and Iran are in indirect talks on a prisoner swap. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Al Jazeera, Shafak News, and the United States Department of State. An NBC report published on Wednesday claimed that the U.S. is holding indirect negotiations with Iran over a possible prisoner swap to secure the release of U.S. citizens detained in the country. The discussions with Qatar and the U.K. acting as mediators have reportedly progressed, but it remains uncertain if a final agreement can be achieved according to four unidentified sources reportedly familiar with the matter. The potential agreement calls for the release of U.S. citizens imprisoned in Iran in exchange for Washington unlocking billions in Iranian funds currently frozen in South Korea due to U.S. sanctions. Initially discussed in 2021, the scheme would allow Iran to access the funds only for purchasing food, medicine, or other humanitarian needs that are subject to existing U.S. sanctions against the country. According to the U.S. Department of State, Washington is seeking the release of what it alleges are wrongfully detained U.S. citizens, Siamak Namazi, Ermad Shargi, and Murad Tabaz, from Iranian custody. As Washington continues to pursue the release of the detainees, tensions are rising between the U.S. and Iran over the country's advancing nuclear program after efforts to revive the 2015 nuclear deal stalled. Those were the facts, and the first spin is a pro-Iran narrative coming from IFP News. Tehran has already shown its goodwill by releasing a dual Iranian-American citizen a few months ago, but Washington has not yet responded in kind. Moreover, Western media is concealing the fact that Iranians are imprisoned in the U.S. simply for violating illegal U.S. sanctions against Tehran. It is up to the U.S., which already unilaterally terminated the nuclear deal, to bring the negotiations to a positive end. And Rudaw brings us an anti-Iran narrative. Along with three detained Iranian-Americans, Iran is using many other dual and foreign nationals as bargaining chips to force concessions. 
Meanwhile, hundreds of protesters have been killed and about 20,000 arrested since the Masha Amini protests began. Washington must not allow itself to be blackmailed by the Tehran regime and should demand political concessions in return for the release of Iranian assets. Narrative C is coming from National Review. Before protests erupted in Iran, which brought talks to revive the 2015 nuclear agreement to a virtual standstill, the release up to $9 billion in Iranian assets in South Korean banks was seen as a first step toward resuming talks to revive the deal. Releasing the money as part of a U.S.-Iran swap could create new momentum. And another nerd narrative says that there's a 48% chance that Iran will possess a nuclear weapon before the year 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, I took an international negotiation class back in college. And I remember one of the main things that they always talked about was never trade something substantive in the negotiations for something that has to do with like the terms of negotiation. Like you wouldn't want to be like, all right, we'll give you some of the prisoners, but we get to choose what kind of chair we're going to be sitting in at the right. meetings. You know, right. something it sounds kind of like that's what they're doing. Yeah. Products for privileges. Right. Ex- exactly. Right. right. Yeah. It's grilled cheese for lunch. Here's a billion dollars in, in foreign aid. What, were you a, politi- a poli-sci major or something? I was, yeah. I was okay. actually a dual major, political science and philosophy, and that's why oh, I'm so wow. rich now. Yeah, I know, man. I, <laughs> I know. I've, I was applying for a loan on your website, scottwallacebankingandtrust.com. Uh, yeah, pretty big deal. Yeah, yep. it is. You got some high interest rates, though, brother. I'm going for a new right, We off, but, but you get to choose what kind of chair you sit in while we're oh, fleecing good. you. Well, as long as it comes with a yeah. peanut butter jelly sandwich, I'm good with that. In our next story, Israel passes a law to revoke citizenship for terror convictions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, Jerusalem Post, Guardian, France 24, and ABC News. Israel's Knesset passed a law on Wednesday to permit authorities to strip people of their citizenship or residency if they were jailed and received funds from the Palestinian Authority for actions determined to be terrorism. The legislation, which passed with a large majority, would largely affect Israeli citizens of Arab descent and Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem, who are not considered full Israeli citizens, but permanent residents. The bill, which received wide bipartisan support, passed by a vote of 94 to 10 in support, with most opposition to it originating from Arab parties. Arab lawmakers in Israel, as well as Palestinian officials in the West Bank, criticized the new law, deeming it racist because it does not apply to Jews, despite its proponents arguing that those who profit from betraying their own country do not deserve citizenship. Most Palestinians generally view prisoners favorably, and the Palestinian Authority considers payments to them and their families as a form of welfare for those in need. However, Israel claims they reward violence and serve as an incentive for others to carry out attacks. The Israeli rights group Hamoket estimates that 4,700 Palestinians are imprisoned by Israel for security offenses. Approximately 360 are Israeli citizens or residents of East Jerusalem. Thanks for laying out the facts, Eric. We have a pro-Palestine spin from Middle East Eye. This legislation, like many Israeli policies of the past 75 years, has one goal, to advance the Zionist project of disenfranchising and displacing the Palestinian people from their homeland. Arabs were already second-class citizens, 
and the Knesset continues to codify this reality into Israel's legal system. Such a policy will not affect Jews who commit acts of violence against civilians. Indeed, this policy constitutes a war crime and only strengthens the Israeli apartheid. A pro-Israel spin is coming from Times of Israel. Though the Palestinians love to cry foul whenever Israel implements a common-sense policy such as this one, the reality is Israel is being far more lenient to terrorists and traitors than most other countries in the world. In many other countries, if a citizen were to betray their nation, they would be served the death penalty. However, Israel instead has decided that traitors will simply be deported to the West Bank, where they can live with the governing body that pays their salaries. The outrage is just the usual double standard applied to the Jewish state. News from China as retirees protest a plan to cut health benefits. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Voice of America, Reuters, Fox News, and The Guardian. Hundreds of Chinese retirees in Wuhan and the northeastern city of Dalian demonstrated for a second time on Wednesday to protect government cuts to their medical benefits. This comes weeks before the annual National People's Congress, which will result in the PRC's new leadership. In both cities, the protesters sang the Internationale, a communist anthem, while others reportedly chanted, down with the reactionary government. Videos on social media showed protesters scuffling with security forces, but the footage has not been fully verified. The cuts were first announced late last year and center around the costs of medical care for the elderly, while ensuring continued prosperity and care for the general population. According to Wuhan residents, the monthly personal medical benefit allowance for retirees, which before the cuts was 261, around $38, is now 83 won, around $12. Wednesday's protests come only a few months after rare demonstrations in November in cities across the country regarding China's zero-COVID policy, which Beijing eventually abandoned the following month. A report released via a PRC government website addressed retirees' complaints, saying that though there had been a reduction in monthly medical benefits, retired workers would have better access to health care and they would actually save money. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is a pro-China narrative coming from Xinhua Net. Though no one likes when their benefits are being cut, China is in a tough situation socially and economically. In addition to the long-known fact that the population is rapidly aging, China's zero-COVID policy took a serious toll on the economy, especially on the local level. The reforms will give retirees additional benefits that will hopefully counteract the decrease in available monthly funds. And the anti-China narrative comes from Al Jazeera. While the sick and old are facing what amounts to austerity measures on their health care, Party officials have access to generous medical treatments at public cost without having to pay for basic health care insurance. Retirees were already struggling before these cuts to their benefits, and now they will have to be even more frugal to survive. Turning our attention back to the United States, the FBI searches Biden papers at the University of Delaware. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Daily Wire, BBC News, New York Times, and Reuters. According to a source familiar with the matter, the FBI has conducted two searches at the University of Delaware as part of its investigation into U.S. President Joe Biden's potential mishandling of sensitive government records. Biden, who graduated from the university in 1965, 
donated over 1,800 boxes of records from his time as U.S. Senator in 2012. Under the terms of the gift, the records are to remain sealed until two years after he retires from public life. Sources report that the FBI conducted the searches in late January and early February with agents retrieving multiple boxes from the college. The material recovered reportedly didn't appear to have classified markings, though the files are now being analyzed by the FBI. Earlier this year, Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed Special Counsel Robert Herr to lead the federal investigation after classified documents were discovered at Biden's think tank office in Washington and one of his houses in Delaware. The searches were reportedly carried out with the cooperation of Biden, who is expected to announce a re-election campaign in the coming weeks or month, and his legal team. Former President Donald Trump is also under investigation for classified documents found at his Florida residence, and former Vice President Mike Pence recently revealed that he found classified material at his Indiana home searched by the FBI last week. We've got a Republican narrative from the New York Post. Every link to potentially mishandled classified documents adds to Biden's long list of offenses. If the most recent documents are found to contain classified matters, then we know he's been illegally handling them for more than a decade. The White House keeps saying it's taking this case seriously, but the president has voiced no regrets over the matter, and his spokespeople have been stonewalling questions about the investigation. MSNBC gives us a Democratic narrative. The only similarity between Biden's and Trump's situations is that both cases involve classified documents. Otherwise, the scenarios are totally different. As Biden has voluntarily informed the DOJ about the discoveries and has cooperated with authorities every step of the way, Trump, however, forced the DOJ to get a warrant and conduct a surprise search, and we still don't know if all of his documents have been returned. And we've got a cynical narrative from CNN. That both Biden and Trump have been called out for possessing documents they shouldn't have had should shed light on the issue of overclassification, which has increased exorbitantly over the past decade, creating an administrative nightmare. There must be reforms to the flawed classification system. I was in Office Depot last weekend, and I noticed oh, there was one of the aisles that featured shredders. They've got the new presidential models available now. Mm. Spares no expense. No. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yep. nice. Yep. Yeah, you can fit over 10,000 documents in at once. I like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're massive. Our final story, the FDA is considering over-the-counter Narcan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Week, CNN, CNBC, NBC, and The Hill. On Wednesday, independent advisors to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration voted unanimously to recommend the over-the-counter sale of Narcan, known generically as naloxone. Narcan is used to reverse the effects of opioid overdoses by blocking the effect of opiates on the brain. Late in 2022, a Baltimore-area pharmaceutical company, Emergent Biosolutions, Incorporated, submitted an application to sell the generic nasal spray to the public which could help support the opioid overdose problem in the U.S. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 560,000 people have died from opioid use in the U.S. in the past 24 years. The deaths occurred in three distinct phases of crises. First, prescription opioids, then heroin, and more recently, fentanyl. The panel's recommendation will now go to the FDA which is expected to make its final decision by March 29th. If approved, consumers will be able to purchase the drug in common locations, such as 
grocery stores, convenience stores, and possibly even vending machines. In 2017, former President Trump's administration was the first to classify the opioid crisis as a public health emergency. Since then, President Biden's administration has renewed the declaration every 90 days. No determination has been made on how much the drug will cost. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts. And the two spins that have emerged begin with narrative A, coming from the American Medical Association. Naloxone should be as accessible as common headache medications and cold and flu remedies. And the American Medical Association is urging the FDA to make this happen. The wider availability of this life-saving drug will go a long way in destigmatizing drug use and will help in fighting the horrors of the opioid crisis. And Narrative B comes from the New York Times. While everyone should have access to Narcan, much more must be done to teach people how to use it. In particular, kids must be able to administer it to their parents or siblings. Labels and instructions can be negotiated to ensure that anyone legally allowed to purchase it can then safely administer the medication for the intended outcome. Implementing this solution is more complex than FDA approval alone. Eric, they mentioned it being in uh, vending machines. I can just see it now, one of those spiral things, and then it gets stuck like a, like a oh, bag of chips. Oh, my goodness. Oh, right. I know. It, but how convenient would that be to get a Coke and a sandwich and a Narcan dispenser? A little, little Narcan, too. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. it's a little bit of everything. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, February 17th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.